Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome everybody and welcome to another one of our practice manager update webinars. Isn't it lovely? We were just talking this morning, we've just seen daffodils, we've seen snowdrops and we're nearly at the end of January, which has to be a good thing. Um, so my name is Louise Greenwood and I'm Director of Education Training at Wessex LMCs and I'm delighted we've got um, Dr Laura Edwards, our Joint CEO, and Dr Will Howard, one of our Medical Directors with us today, as well as Lisa Harding, one of our Directors of Primary Care, and Dawn Childcraft, our Deputy Director of Primary Care. Um, so I'm just going to hand you straight over to Laura and Will and they're going to take you through the topic which is very hot at the moment of shared care. So I think Laura you're going to lead the way. Thank you very much. So shared care is um, a really important aspect of care that we are hearing from practices is causing increased tension and pressure at the moment. Um, and again, this is because uh, we've seen particularly a, a couple of um, areas of medication whereby uh, this is causing pressure points specifically. Um, but in general, we are seeing shared care medications increase and we're also seeing increased focus from CQC, which we will come back to in, in a bit. Um, so just to recap, because I think it's one of these things, it's been there for a while, the numbers have all been quite manageable and so people have just sort of, it's been one of those things that has rolled on. But because the pressure is mounting, then people are looking at this a little bit more carefully and, um, and again, people are standing there now and saying, what are the rules about this? Like, what do I have to do? What don't I have to do? What, what are the rules of play? What does the other side have to do? And, um, and, and feeling like they're just operating slightly in a, a confused place. So we have produced some guidance around this, which encompasses everything. So as I said earlier, there's been some pressure points we've seen, particularly, for example, around ADHD, um, that uh, people are feeling uncertain. So we've actually gone broad and gone back to the basic principles on this, which then allows you to apply those principles to any medications um, now or in the future where there might be uh, pressure or, or confusion or uncertainty about it. So going right back to the beginning on this, in our guidance, we have stated what shared care is. So shared care is a term used within the NHS to describe a situation where the specialist doctor wishes to pass over some part of the responsibility, some part of the patient's care. So that might be the prescribing and or the monitoring that is passed over. It's something that be, can be requested by them, um, but it, it, an, it says this everywhere, it can only be done if the GP agrees. Okay, that is really fundamental to remember. This is voluntary and it's also not part of the GMS contract. Okay, it's definitely viewed as above and beyond the GMS contract. So I think some of that has gotten forgotten and also even though it says it in the first two words, shared care, shared means that you have to take part with somebody else. And again, what we're seeing is that perhaps specialists are deploying. Uh, and Laura's just talking about the reality of needing to have um, agreement of the GP. And we just want to highlight that as one of the key parts of that message um, is that when you assess any request from a specialist to accept shared care, the GP or the practice as an organisation needs to be able to actively accept that care. Isn't that right, Laura? Yeah, so I think how that is done without it becoming a clunky process is, again, open to agreement. Um, but I think there needs to be that realisation by the other organisation that it isn't just a fait accompli. You cannot just take it as granted that when they write and say, 
I'm handing over, that, that that's a direct instruction. Now, it, it isn't a command and control approach, this. This is collaborative working, and there has to be a mechanism that is straightforward and accessible for the GP or the practice to decline taking on that responsibility. And again, I think in the current climate, just kind of culture over time has meant that perhaps other providers involved in shared care have forgotten that there is an option to say no and that it is perfectly reasonable for a GP and or their implied practice to decline um, that offer of taking the responsibility. So I think that's really, really important. As I said, it's got lost recently. Um, and uh, just remembering this is not part of your core contract. So again, if you are drowning in workload, this may be an area that you choose to revisit and think, do we actually have capacity to take this on? It's an optional thing that we are taking on at this point. Do we have capacity to do it in addition to what we're do doing in our, we need to do for our core contract? So, um, shared care, again, makes it sound really simple. And again, we as an LMC have been pushing out there in, in conversations around locally commissioned services that we've seen to remind those that are commissioning this that shared care isn't just one thing. It's not one process. So under some LCSs, they're putting up to 27 different medications, each of which requires a different process, a different approach, has a different set of side effects and potentially different monitoring there. So again, that realisation needs to be on both sides, that it's not just one thing with one process. There are lots and lots of variations that need to be there, individualities that need to be underneath that umbrella. And then there's this concept which I'd like to kind of bring out, which is about blind compassion. The actual person who coined it kind of made it a bit harsher. They used, they used a, a, a more unpleasant word, but it comes from a Buddhist um, angle. And they talk about blind compassion, which is where you feel pressured to take an action that feels like the right thing at the time, but in actual fact causes more difficulties later on because you haven't made a more difficult choice. And I do wonder if, again, because of the system that we're in, what we're seeing is the system putting pressure onto GPs and patients do this as well for all very understandable reasons, saying, please prescribe this for me, please take over this care. And, and we feel we're under pressure to do it, even though actually we're over capacity, we're actually over safe limits. And when we take it on, we can't do it properly or safely. But we are giving out the drug and so the patient is happy, but they don't potentially realise that it is um, it, it's working in an unsafe way. And so ultimately, if something went wrong, then actually more harm would be done than if we had said no at the beginning and asked the, um, the system to pick this up or asked responsibility to remain with the specialist provider provider and again this is system pressures saying we haven't got any capacity no one's got any capacity please 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 you do it um, and then the problem goes away but it doesn't really go away so again we're asking you to make a considered decision around this in our guidance we've covered all the different scenarios so again it's a very complex um a very complex area and field that we're now working in. We don't just have our local NHS provider and our local NHS consultants uh, in each speciality to deal with, because again, this covers a number of specialities, but we also have interactions with private providers, with other NHS providers who might be outside of our area. Um, and uh, we've also got right to choose um, where they've got, uh, they are an independent business, a private provider, but they've got an NHS contract somewhere else. And again, patients understandably, 
are getting tempted, they hear about this, they're picking that, but actually the interaction that we need to have with them and that interdependency can feel much more complex and uncertain. So we've put on our website uh, page, which we will share in the chat, we've put all the different kind of uh, options and alternatives that might be there that you will be asked to sign up to shared care in uh, the circumstances uh, that you can work through and again, be aware of the principles under which you are making that decision. And then our other piece of advice is that we really want practice to think about taking this pressured decision, because it is a pressured decision, away from a single clinician, single patient interaction, and actually making this a practice level decision. Because in all honesty, it needs to be that the practice has safe systems and processes in place and that the practice has capacity and expertise in order to provide um, this service. So if, for example, you have one doctor who is an absolute specialist in this and they're happy doing all of this, what happens from a resilience perspective if for some reason that doctor isn't available? Either they're on hol holiday briefly and something goes wrong with one of the tests or more you know more seriously what if they end up going on prolonged sick leave or they leave the practice for whatever reason um what would you do because actually you've taken on some stuff you need to have the whole practice to be able to do this and not depend on just one individual otherwise you know you could find yourselves in difficulty so we think this should be a practice level decision and again it takes the pressure and responsibility away from one clinician making this with one potentially very stressed patient in front of them um, but it also means that you're approaching this in a consistent and fair and equal way. So if you are challenged by a patient, why did your doctor do this and my doctor, who's in the same practice, say a different answer, then actually you've got a process that you're going through um, that allows you to say this is the decision making process that we went through. But it also allows you to take some time to reflect to say, is it safe or not? Where are we at in terms of capacity at the moment? Can we take this on? And remembering that there is an option to say no. Now, some of you will be frantically typing, I expect, in the sidebar saying, but we've signed up to an LCS. How does that work? Um, because uh, we are being paid for this, so we are getting recognition for it. And this is particularly a live issue in Hampshire and Isle of Wight, where we've been involved uh, as, as an LMC in a, a negotiation of a new locally commissioned service around this. And we currently have anxieties, which we are literally live negotiating around at the moment. And our anxieties are that they've put all a whole wide range of medication in there and everything that's under it, as the wording currently stands, you will need to say yes every time. And we as an MC think this is fundamentally wrong. We think that as with any other service anywhere else in the health system, if it's not safe, there should be an option to say we've hit our safety limit. It's not safe. And this currently doesn't allow that. So that is the main issue that we are pushing back on. And there is no ceiling on this either. So there is, again, we're seeing some areas like AHG as an example, where there's been a huge surge in awareness of it, of people wanting to get a diagnosis, and then understandably thinking they would like to try something to help, which is in the form of medication sometimes. And um, we are seeing a massive spike in that number. There is absolutely no ceiling in the LCS of, or a cap on the workload. And again, we have seen some providers locally also realising that the LCS is there and uh, therefore taking it as a kind of fait accompli again, that they can then transfer 
all of their patients that they have been monitoring and prescribing for across um, into primary care. And we do not think all of those things should get conflated. We think these should be separate conversations and we think that this should be you start where you're at, and if there is an increase in the workload, uh, then that should be rediscussed and funding come with it. But also at any point, practices should be able to say, we don't have the expertise to do that medication and or we don't have capacity to do it in our systems, processes and workforce at that point. So we've put this together um, uh, in terms of uh, a checklist that we think allows you to be safe on our website. Um, and we'd ask you to have a think about that um, and if you're currently signed up to the Hampshire and Isle of Wight LCS, you need to have a read of it and decide whether you feel like it protects you enough. Um, and uh, and um, and we'd be happy to hear any questions on that, on all of shared care. Thanks, Laura. That's brilliant. I just wanted to highlight there's a query which we've kind of semi-answered in the question and answer bit there. Um, the expectation from our ICB seems to be that if we sign up and my PCN has not, that we will provide shared care on all the listed drugs. No option to continue to do those if the GP is comfortable uh, and say no to others. So um, we've kind of alluded to that. You certainly answered most of that. I think what what Laura's um, saying to make it you know really plain and simple, if you don't have the capacity or you don't have the competence for certain medications, then firstly, if you are not signed up to an LCS, then you should say no if you do not have those two things. If you are signed up to an LCS, and the Hampshire Isle of Wight one is a great example, um, it's important that the LCS has an option to allow GPs to say no. And that's the bit where uh, Laura and I and the rest of the team at the LMC are negotiating really hard on your behalf. We really feel that that is a red line in the sand, that any LCS that is uh, across any area should absolutely contain the ability for GPs to say no. And that's about safe capacity. We talk about safe working a lot now in general practice, and this should be no different in how we see this particular LCS, if that is what is happening in your area. Also looking across the other areas. So if we look at BSW and Dorset and also Northeast Hanson Farnham area that we cover, um, it's very clear that LCS is a going to become an increasingly live topic across those areas as ICBs start to look at how they can make, uh, form a more consistent approach from where they have previously existed CCGs. So um, we're learning a lot as an, uh, as an LMC um, and how we re have responded to the LCS has actually caused a pause in Hampshire Isle of Wight of the onset of that LCS. Equally, we do recognise that the LCS itself is bringing money into primary care. You know, it's an investment, which it should be, in work that practices are doing. We don't want to lose that investment in primary care. So we need to form a pragmatic approach with our ICB and make sure we don't lose that investment because lots of practices are doing this work and doing it incredibly effectively and safely. So we want to make sure those practices do continue to receive and hopefully receive more income for the work, especially when the list of drugs is really quite long. And I think one of the risks here is, is if you make the list long and have in your LCS that you could add more drugs, as long as the ICB say it, you'll do more. Actually, we need practices um, to be able to say no to those extra drugs, especially if they don't have the competence or the capacity, as we mentioned earlier. So I hope that helps. And I think the reassurance bit there is, is we're still working hard on the Hampshire Isle of Wight LCS. Yeah, and we're absolutely pushing for that it should be this whole concept of shares. Again, I think there needs to be, you know, real 
clarity and accountability for both parties. So again, we feel like sensible approach to this is anything that is in shared care that is named by the ICB should have a shared care guideline with it that lays out the expectations of both sides. But there should also be a way, a mechanism of if either side isn't fulfilling their expectations and their roles or decides to play outside of the rules as I've had you know recently with a patient of mine they've just suggested something completely random that isn't in the shared care guidance and um, then there's a mechanism to say thank you very much but you, you you aren't doing your bit of the bargain so we we have we we are allowed to hand back and again I, I just don't think that that's really there and also, if there is a problem, again, it's shared care. And the whole idea is we're kind of taking the bit where it's just running and ticking over. That's the bit we should be doing. If there are bumps in the road, if there are changes, then actually that's where the specialist should come in. But we all need, it's about trust, which is always fundamental, trust that those specialists are there, that they will respond and that they will pick up that responsibility in a timely and safe way for our patients. And again, we're not convinced by some of the sort of things that we've been seeing that that is there so we again we're pushing the icb to say this is fundamental you can't bring in a, a, an lcs around interface working effectively when you haven't really talked to the other side yet and made them clear on what they should be doing and hold them accountable for what they need to be doing for patients to be safe i think the last point i want to say is there has been kind of a um an impression and i think it may have come from the faqs that there would be a sentence in the lcs about uh, clinical confidence and competence around prescribing the latest copy that we've seen of the lcs does not have that in from the icb it was something i think that was banded around but it isn't in there correct me if i'm wrong will on that but we've had a look through and it isn't there there was something that was mooted but it hasn't gone in in the writing and therefore if it isn't in there it's not in the contract. So um, anyone who feels like that's where they're signing up for and they feel we are assured by that, as it currently stands, you shouldn't be. So um, again, we're, we're lobbying hard on that because we think that is absolutely essential to be in there as a safeguard. Uh, so we will push for that. But again, if you would like to back us up that you think that should be there, um, then please contact your local team and, and express your concern because the more the ICB team are here that the concern is not just Will and I coming up with the concern, but actually practices coming up with these concerns, then that really helps us in our negotiations. Thank you. Laura, you just mentioned there that the, the trust, and there's a question that's come in um, mm. in the chat. Uh, what support is there with wider shared care plans, for example, gender GP? Uh, and what you just summarised there is, is as a GP, if you're genuinely sharing care, and the key there is sharing, you need to feel that there is a sense of trust that when that bump in the road does appear for a patient with whom you're sharing care with a specialist, such as gender GP, you have trust that that specialist will be both responsive and able to play their part in the sharing and that you're going to get a responsive message that they will take control of a situation when there's complexities. Because uh, in, in my personal experience, um, I don't really feel confident that an organisation such as gender GP is going to be able to respond to problems when they arise in a timely manner to ensure the safety of the patient. And this is about safety. You have to have trust in your colleagues who you're sharing the care with that they will ensure that there is that safety, that backup. Uh, and, and as Laura's just described, if it's an NHS organisation, then we are working to ensure our ICBs let those secondary care organisations know that they are sharing care and what their roles and responsibilities in genuine sharing are. But it's very much more difficult for an ICB or an LMC or an individual GP to um, get that sense 
of what um, a, a private organization will be able to do to play their part in that in that confidence that they will be able to clinically advise and support decision making for the safety of a patient and in that yeah. situation i think most of us would say we would not feel confident sharing the care therefore with an organization such as the one described I think, yeah, it's, it's about, again, them evidencing and in our checklist, it's thinking, are they adhering to UK um, best practice? And do you feel convinced by that? Because, again, it's about you and whether you trust them. Uh, so that is a, that's a feeling. Um, and I think with some organisations, you may want to look on their website, you know, are they registered in the UK? So I think Gender GP have said they don't have any prescribing um, clinicians who are in the UK. None of their prescribing clinicians are in the UK. Um, so again, that may, you know, it's up to you. These, these choices are always up to you. Um, but um, that may tip how you feel in terms of going through our checklist of are they adhering to local pathways? Um, because they're not under the regulation of the UK at all. Um, and uh, I had another point. Um, and secondly, you know, again, going back to right back to what I said at the start, this is voluntary. So they may send very strong letters that make you feel that you are under this duty to take over. But go back to the beginning, you're not under a duty to take over. Again, patients are caught in the middle on this and it's really hard. Um, but again, just remember what I was talking about, blind compassion. If you're not the right person to take this over, even though you may feel the pressure to do so, actually think fundamentally in the long run, this is not in the best interest of the patient of me doing this. Um, and you need to have the, the confidence of your convictions to be able to do that. And actually, if it is an organisation worth its salt, it will continue to prescribe because, again, that's the rules of play. If you decline, they will continue. Um, so, and again, private providers, we cover that there, which just can be really difficult um, in terms of, you know, patient expectation. If you refer to a private provider or a right to choose, um, and again, this comes up particularly for ADHD, but it may come up for others. Do you, are you just getting a diagnosis from that organisation or will they prescribe for you? Um, and uh, if it's just the, the, the former and just getting a diagnosis, patient expectation needs to be managed that you cannot share if there isn't anyone to share with. This is a shared care medication. You can't share if there isn't another organization to share with because a lot of these private providers will step out at that point um, and again if you if you get a request from a private provider again there needs to be a conversation with the patient and understanding that it's documented that what happens if that organization ceases to exist which we have seen that they fold um, or what happens if the patient doesn't have the funds sadly to continue um, the, the care with that private organization again you won't have anyone to share with you will be operating potentially um, ultra-virus outside of your competence and confidence um, and that scenario needs to be discussed and it is fine at that point to stop the medication you need to have that agreement um, that that is the consequence of what would happen in that scenario you would therefore if they felt the need was there your duty would be to refer and see NHS services and that's your duties if they need that specialist help um, and assessment then you you refer Things like the waiting times are, are not under our control. It's not our fault. Again, the patient will not necessarily be happy with that, but um, we are the messenger in that. It's not our actual under our control, those waiting times, um, frustrating as they are. Yeah, one of the things that I'm I'm very aware of is that sometimes we are we are in the firing line for the ire of patients in decisions like that. And I think it's very important, therefore, that if you organisationally have a policy, then 
you can stand next to that policy and say, listen, this is something that we as a group of either a group of GPs and and our partners or um, even a a wider level at a PCN are able to stand next to that policy and say, this is something that every GP has signed up to. And in my experience, one of the issues that we have had with shared care and perhaps a relative lack of understanding of the consequences of taking on shared care in general practice is, is that one GP in one room will say yes and another GP in another room will say, oh, no, I don't know about that. And that then can cause problems for the practice. Now, that's historical. I think it is important now we're trying to highlight the consequences of taking on shared care that any practice or even PCN, should you feel that that's something you can take on as a PCN, is able to form a policy. That will actually improve your feedback to organisations like CQC and it'll help you respond to any complaints or issues that you might have should patients choose to complain. Um, And it's certainly something that ICBs would want you to have when it comes to their quality teams and looking at the way in which you are sharing care safely. Yeah, I think that's really key, Will. So just really highlight CQC. This is something they are enjoying because they can look at this remotely in their own time, out of time pressure. They can, you know, they get remote access to your systems before they come. This is beautiful in terms of it's very searchable. They can identify these patients. They can look on the records and they look for the processes. Um, and we are seeing this, uh, you know, consistently from them. So this is you know they've publicized it again on their website that these are the searches they're doing um so this is a real area of focus for them so again you need to be clear that you can control the workload you have sufficient capacity competence confidence and the right things in place that you can do this otherwise you are going to pay consequences as an organization under cqc so there's one more comment that I think it's worth us highlighting here. It, it feels as if the ICB are relying on the squeeze on practice finances to force us to sign up. We absolutely recognise that. We really do. And um, it, we recognise the financial pressure that practices are under. We, we fully support um, that we understand that practices are under this financial pressure. And we really very much like to highlight that. We are really working so that this money and any investment in LCSs, especially in Hampshire Isle of Wight as it's live, is not lost to primary care, but that some of the framework around which those payments can be reached are made safer for primary care. So put a better primary care safety focus into the enhanced service. Um, we don't want practices to not be able to sign up, but it does need to be safe and it does need to be in, in, within a clinician's competence. And, and I think safety is something that is very difficult for any organisation, especially an ICB, to argue against. And, and we will continue, as Laura said, to lobby the ICB to try and improve the LCS as it stands. And as Laura says, that is very live for us at the moment. Yeah. And the resource needs to match. So again, some resource is great, but it does need to be resource that matches the work. So you again, you need to make a decision as a practice, do the numbers stack up for you? Um, and when wouldn't they? So again, if numbers do increase, at what point would you say, actually, given that there's no commensurate increase in funding, it is per pop, per patient that you're getting this funding, then um, what, what, what number would mean that it changes? Um, and secondly, just to say some practices have not cho- have not signed up. So again, I don't think the ICB have necessarily shared that, but there are a number of practices spread out across the Hampshire and Isle of Wight area um, that have not signed up at this point. Um, so there is, again, within this shared care, there is the option to say no. It may not be presented in that way, um, but there is the option to say no. And it's always difficult to turn down funding coming into your practice. But 
if a service costs you £300 to put on, I'm making up a number, and they give you £100, then it doesn't make sense to do it. Um, so you need to make that considered decision around it. Or if there's a factor that we have described that makes you feel unhappy, and if we could change it, like there being a cap on it and the ability to say no, then feed that back. Because again, that, that adds um, weight to our negotiating position to be able to get those things in place that then makes you feel safe and you can sign up in the safe knowledge that these these measures and safeguards are in place for you. That has been so useful. Thank you so much, Laura, and thank you, Will. And so really from that conversation, as I say, we're going to chop this into a podcast by itself so people can use this as to stimulate this discussion within their practice. So you would suggest if the conversation hadn't had, haven't been had or haven't been resolved, have the conversations in your practice. Look at our um, look at the link um, to, on our website. And there is a really helpful little checklist there to, to, to help you form a policy. Um, so that's what we're really asking people to do, isn't it, from from this session today is just to go back, have a think on a policy and I think that we I think you mentioned the word consistency will I think that is going to be very very helpful and um yeah we don't want any backlash from patients but if everybody's having the same uh, message that's going to be very very helpful um and a PCNY too so thank you so much Will and Laura you're very welcome to stay for the whole session or if you need to go we do understand so thank you particularly to Laura who's got particularly trying circumstances today but it's been fantastic you joining us thank you very welcome thank you um so I think we're going to go on to Dawn now and Dawn's going to take us through a look at oh, pensions. Here we go then, Dawn. Uh, thank you, Louise. Um, yes, it's that time of year. Um, NHS pensions have now published the 22-23 Type 1 and Type 2 um, self-assessment forms, um, and they're all available on the NHS BSA website. Um, <clears throat> we've put those links with the podcast if you haven't already got them, but you probably perhaps might. <laughs> Um, however, it's worth noting NHS pensions have extended the deadline this year for pension scheme members to submit their end of year pension forms. And the deadline for submission for type one and type two is now the 31st of March 2024. Um, PCSE, also worth noting, are currently updating their systems um, to allow you to submit the 22, 23 uh, type one and type two certificates on their usual uh, online platform um, and because of that system update work they're doing um, the actual um, opportunity to start uploading onto PCSE online is from Monday the 12th of Feb so you can certainly download the forms now from NHS BSA if you want to get started or your accountant wants to get started on them um, <clears throat> and then you can start uploading them on PCSE online from the 12th of February. Now, PCSE are running some webinars as well to try and help uh, with this for anybody that's uh, going it alone or uh, any kind of advisor or accountant that wants to have a look as well. Um, now, they started yesterday, Tuesday, the 30th of January. There's another today. But moving forward, there's two in February, the 20th and the 21st of February, and there's another one on the 19th of March. If you are using an accountant or an advisor to help you prepare your Type 1 and Type 2 certificates, um, you can download a copy, they suggest, of the 2223 employee contribution statement from PCSE online, share it with them as soon as possible um, <clears throat> because they will need that and can use that to start preparing your forms if you're uh, you know, going to use them for some help with that. Um, I don't know if I can move straight on. You can move straight on, swiftly on. Thank you, Dawn. Moving swiftly on, thank you very much. Uh, MMR, National Call and Recall, 
Um, we have mentioned this before, but MMR um, is quite a hot topic at the moment. So we thought it was probably good just to draw your attention and just go over a couple of points again here. So MMR practices are advised that the national uh, call and recall to support the uh, programme um, will be taking place throughout February and March. And the national vaccination reminders will be sent to parents and guardians of children aged 6 to 11 who require one or two doses of the vaccine. Now, in London, you might have heard <clears throat> there has been an um, outbreak in London and parts of the Midlands, um, and they're actually going to, uh, I say they, NHS England, are also going to call young adults um, and children six to 25 years um, for a reminder to come forward for vaccination. However, for everyone else outside of those areas, they're concentrating at present on the six to 11-year-olds for call and recall. Um, so good idea for practices just to be prepared to receive inquiries from patients or parents rather um, during February and March if that hasn't already started um, with this topic coming to the top of the list of um, uh, important, not importance probably, but because um, measles has raised its head um, sadly around the country again. Um, so update on guidance for risk assessment. There are a number of uh, resources out there. Um, issued by uh, UXA, UK HSA. Um, and we have got on our website a page, if you go searching for measles, quite simple. Um, and we have a page which has a number of resources on there, including a toolkit um, that UXA have put out from uh, January 2024. Um, and the other question we've been asked about uh, quite a lot recently is immunisation for practice staff. Um, we have got a vaccine and immunisation webpage that does feature a paragraph on immunisation for practice staff. But what I think is quite useful as well for practices to have a look at is the CQC Mythbuster number 37, um, because we have had questions, what happens if I've got staff that haven't been vaccinated? for whatever reason, don't wish to be or can't be vaccinated. And the CQC Mythbuster 37 does deal with that. Um, and essentially, you need to be doing a risk assessment. I'm sure you would be. Um, and you need to document your decisions on what's happened and why um, so that, you know, you can actually uh, validate any decisions that have been made if you do need to demonstrate such. Um, I think that's all we have on that. Before we move on, Dawn, we've got a question coming in, and I'm not sure whether we can answer this, but we do have, obviously, Dr. McCall, they might be able to help us. Um, if a patient at a practice is a non-clinical member of staff at another practice, they think they've had measles as a child but not documented, is a blood test to check immunity required? And if so, is it the employer or the practice where they are a patient? I think I might be able to help with that, but I'm sure Will and Laura hopefully will me right but i think what's useful particularly for mmr slightly different to other vaccinations vaccinations for your employees are an occupational health um uh, activity and obviously need to be dealt with as a, an occupational health activity however mmr is slightly different because it is actually referenced within the sfe for an item of service fee um, and also within the green book for healthcare workers um, and as such, if you go to the Green Book, Chapter 21, Measles, it actually does document what you can do for various uh, adults, um, <clears throat> depending on what they have or they haven't had through various um, timelines during their life. Maybe you don't know if they've had anything at all. Some, depending upon their age, some might have had measles only because the actual MMR vaccine wasn't available when they were a child. But the chapter 21 of the Green Book does actually um, 
quite quite helpfully lay all those out. Um, but also within the Green Book, it does say for healthcare workers, which includes obviously those in primary care, um, if you are at risk of high exposure, which that is basically what what the, what you are if you are. Um, you know, front facing with patients, um, then it is advisable for you to have the vaccination. Um, and it tells you on what dose and how many doses, depending on what you have or you haven't had before. It does also mention the option of having uh, a blood test, but that is an option. Aside from that, it does also suggest if you don't want to go through, I guess, that option, what doses you can and should give, um, depending upon upon what you do or don't know of any past vaccinations. Brilliant. Thank you, Don. That's very comprehensive. Um, and just as yeah, PS is patients born before 1970, but it sounds like the Green Book's going to help with that. It, it does refer to anybody That's born before 1970. What chapter was it, Don? We were all very impressed that you knew the chapter. Oh, uh, I think it's chapter 21. Two seconds. Don't I might doubt even... yourself. We, we don't doubt you, Don. I'm sure yeah, that's no, I have got it open still. It is chapter 21, yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. I hope that was helpful, um, Jenny. So I think you're going on now to Screening Help Desk, I think, Dawn. Oh, yes, actually. Yes, the, the NHS Screening Help Desk closes today, 31st, end of January. So as part of transition work in NHS England, uh, the NHS Screening Help Desk will close from today, end of January. Any queries from health professionals working in screening that were pre- previously directed to the help desk can now be directed through routine business channels and the information I've got says as follows and there are a number of them so I think my maybe what might be helpful is if with the podcast we list out all the various channels that are now available to anybody who works in screening and obviously now can't access the NHS screening health desk if that's okay yeah very wise, Dawn, very wise. Um, just another question about um, MMR. Could practices give their staff members the MMR vaccination and the clinicians still be indemnified? I don't believe so, no, because remember, you'd be doing it not as a, as a patient, you'd be effectively doing that as an occupational health activity and you're not indemnified to do that as an occupational health activity. But the patient, sorry, the member of staff is a patient at their own surgery somewhere and, and it is at acceptable and within the SFE they can go to their own practice and have that. Really clear, thank you Dawn, that's very very helpful. Um, Lisa I think we're coming to you now, um, Pharmacy First, that's been hitting the headlines today hasn't it? It has, thank you Louise, I'm sure everybody's heard about this on, on the radio coming in this morning anyway, um, but just in case you didn't know, uh, Community Pharmacy First has been launched today um, and the new service should enable community pharmacists or those community pharmacists that have signed up to the service to complete episodes of care for patients without the need for the patient to visit their general practice. So there are a number of services that they can deliver, including um, acute otitis media, impetigo, infected insect bites, shingles, sinusitis, sore throat, and uncomplicated UTIs. And there are some criteria around that, of course. Um, so this sits alongside expansions to some of the other community pharmacy services, such as blood pressure checking and contraception. Um, and the hope is that it will save around 10 million general practice team appointments a year and help um, patients access uh, care more conveniently and, and more quickly. So um, the Pharmacy First service incorporates the previous CPCS service that you might be familiar with. Um, in terms of access, patients can access the new service via referrals, such as from NHS 111 or from their GP uh, practice, 
or uh, from the emergency department or indeed by walking into the pharmacy themselves uh, or by video consultation. Um, in terms of practices, finding out which pharmacies in their area are delivering the service and which services they're delivering. Um, the UEC directory of services will include details of the pharmacies providing the service. So you may want to double check and see um, which pharmacies have signed up within your area. Um, the other bit that we know is of particular interest to practices is, is that mechanisms to capture consultation outcomes in the patient record will be rolled out in February, we're told. Until then, practices will continue to receive information via NHS mail. So we'll keep a close eye on that one. Um, and the other bit, although it, it was obviously in the media out today, um, they are saying that there will be a, a further public comms campaign launching mid-February, um, so in the next couple of weeks, to encourage public to access um, advice and treatment from their community pharmacy for those common conditions. Lovely. Thank you, Lisa. And I think you're going on with the NHS app? Or yeah, um, just the final item, I think, for us uh, today. So um, from the 30th of January, uh, the NHS app will show the mean, i.e. average waiting times for patients referred into a specialty at NHS acute trusts. Um, the national rollout follows a successful trial period at Kingston Hospital, um, who worked with the NHS England team to monitor progress against the trust te telephony system, PAL service and local GP community. Hopefully this should help patients understand how long they're likely to wait and manage the number of calls and visits into primary and secondary care. Uh, so again, one to watch this space and see how that pans out. Lovely, thank you, Lisa. Um, just going back, a comment I think probably dawned more than anything else. Um, appreciate its occupational health, but isn't the MMR being referenced as a public health emergency? Does that change things like COVID on flu? It seems a waste to spare a member of staff to have something that we could do here. I think we just acknowledge that. I'm not sure we have any power to do, to do anything about that. Um, Laura, I think you might have um, something to say. Yeah. I would say on the MMR, um, I think that's a really good point. And again, you know, there've been exceptions made, haven't there, around flu and this this indemnity kind of non-loophole, as it were. Um, and uh, I think it's something we're happy to take as an LMC. We have links with public health and push to them and say, actually, this would be something great if it could be agreed nationally. Um, and again, if there's some work with the indemnity providers to say, actually, this would be a good way of, of, of um, vaccinating quite a lot of people who are frontline and therefore at risk of getting uh, this and spreading it. Because again, what we know is it's incredibly infectious, don't we? So you are virtually kind of guaranteed if you're non-immune, you know, it's in the high 90s that you will get uh, measles if you're in a room with somebody for 15 minutes. It's just one of the most infectious things. And I, th I think, again, I'm pulling from my memory, that if you have one person, it will infect 17 other people around you quite quickly. So it's a, it's an incredibly infectious I would think it sounds like a logical thing. We just need the bureaucracy really behind that to to uh, unwind a little bit. Um, so we're happy to to raise that and start pushing on those doors before it kind of hits our our area as an emergency. So good point. Yeah. Um, and I also just want to pick up about pharmacy first, just to say again, we've been talking to the LPC about this and very high sign up. So. Um, Again, we always think that grass is greener potentially on the other side. Pharmacies are really squeezed. They got they got a five-year contract and also got told that nothing in the world had changed and therefore their contract didn't need uplifting in terms of funding. So you will see them being overwhelmed and under pressure and things like Lloyd's Pharmacy having pulled out completely of, uh, of the um, England market. 
um, as a result of that. Um, the money for Pharmacy First, it, again, we will feel empathy for them. It's money that was already in their contract that's been recycled around and presented as new money for them. Uh, so they are desperate to try and get this money to maintain their income. It's just being presented in a different way. So to access that income and maintain their income, they're being asked to do this and step into that more cl clinical zone. The result has been that there is very, very high sign up. Um, so hopefully, even where you haven't had CPCS, you will have this and it's up to you uh, whether to, um, you know, how helpful it is. Um, and the other point that we've heard back is that dispensing practices are finding this actually a challenge to them and their funding streams. So um, again, we've heard that and we will be raising that nationally um, and have indeed have already had conversations around that as a kind of un unforeseen consequence of this. Thank you. That's helpful, Laura. Thank you. And thank you for all your questions today. That's been really interesting. And you can see from the last question we had there that we are in a position, we do talk to all sorts of people to push things higher up, if that's helpful to you. So please don't feel that um, you can't ask us because we can always just push things back and push back. And it's useful for us to have the information from you on the ground. And the more we give you, give us the information, the more ammunition you've got. So um, thank you so much for joining in with us today. Thank you for listening. And those of you listening on the podcast, it's been great to have you, Laura, Will, Lisa and Dawn. Thank you so much. We we will see you again next time. We're back on Wednesday, the 14th of February at one o'clock. And um, just pencil in your diaries, 25th of June is going to be our GP and practice manager conference for 2024. So we hope to see you there too. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.